Relating to Self. A podcast that helps you create a better relationship with yourself. Hey, I'm Joachim. Welcome. Do you realize that there is only one relationship that you will always be in? The relationship with yourself. Improving that relationship changes everything. On this podcast, I share my thoughts and I invite real people to have vulnerable conversations about how they relate to themselves and what we can learn from that. In today's episode, I speak with Chris, who believes that authenticity is something that is shared. It's a relation. Enjoy. Chris, welcome to the Relating to Self podcast. Hello. So I always ask the guest how they would like to be introduced. And with you, that was not as easy as it usually is in the sense that you said something like you don't really have a fixed way of introducing yourself, which I kind of like. So I will start by saying how I know you, which is we met a bit more than a year ago now in a small retreat center somewhere in the south of Portugal, where a mutual friend of ours had organized a, let's say, COVID-free bubble of interesting humans to spend some time with each other, exploring community, exploring co-living, co-working, and so on. And so that is where we met. And what you did tell me is that you had no family wealth, yet you've never had a job, which is interesting. And you might even call yourself a philosopher. I think that's all amazing. And today we are here to talk about how you relate to yourself. And so as a bit of context, perhaps, perhaps people are new to the podcast. This is maybe your first episode. I've been thinking about this for a very long time in terms of my healing process, how I went through life shedding uh, some of the trauma I had accumulated in my youth, uh, thinking about how could I improve my life quality. And I came to the conclusion that a lot of the problems I struggled with were actually problems with how I related to myself, namely how I spoke to myself, how harsh I was to myself, how unkind I was to myself, how unforgiving and so on and so on. And so I started exploring this, this deep terrain of like, wait, but how is it that I actually relate to myself and how can I improve this? So the whole idea of this podcast is to help people and inspire them to think about how they relate to themselves and how they can improve this potentially by listening to other people's journey and hear about what has made an impact for them. And so my first question to you, Chris, is a very traditional question that I always use is when you hear these words relating to self, what does that mean to you? What comes up? Well, I, I translate it into the question, how do I represent myself to myself and maybe to others too? But primarily, how do I represent myself to myself? And it's, it's a very difficult question. It's usually representing myself to others that forces me to find, to crystallize a particular way of expressing who I might be or some aspect of who I might be. Um, so to consider it in, in full generality, who am I from this potentially unfiltered perspective from the inside? It doesn't lead to any 
immediate answer. Um, so I can start to analyze the question a bit and draw upon different psychological models or other frameworks I might have to start to start breaking it down and thinking about, well, what is there for me? Well, it's my experience. Other different mm. aspects of my experience, different domains or levels of it, or however we might want to describe it. And, and for sure there are. Uh, it, but it's harder to talk about some of those domains of experience than others. There's the very short, in the moment experience, sort of sensory, perceptual experience of just being this body, which is obviously a very rich experience for me, but hard to put into words and share. And yet I wonder if this is the most important one. Because how I end up behaving in a whole range of situations or where I even look to find words that I might attach to myself is already shaped by, by this felt sense of how the universe is right now, which for me tends to be a feeling that the universe is pretty good right now. And I suppose that is my, that's my first answer on this question of relating to self and particularly in reaction to your your describing your own history of reflecting on how you may have been harsher to yourself at some point um, and then perhaps moved more in a direction of, of generosity to myself to yourself and i can i can see in those terms that i have while well, as a younger child i i might have been a little bit strict with myself in terms of expectations about performance in the aspects of life where I knew myself to be to be good in some way. So if I'm used to getting top grades at school, then I expect myself to do that. And if I you know ever drop a mark, then I would reflect deeply on why. But but actually it's more more striking is my attitude to almost everything else in my in life was was great generosity. Like, oh, it looks like maybe I'm not so good at this thing. Oh well, that's that's fine. Can't be good at everything. Um, you know, lucky I'm good at anything at all, really. So, <laughs> I haven't had that kind of strictness or unrealistic expectation of myself. If anything, the, if there's any criticism, it would probably go the other way. It would probably say actually being fundamentally generous of spirit towards myself, there's been a, a corresponding lack of drive. So my drive has always been intellectual curiosity, which is sustained from a, from a psychologically very neutral and stable position. I don't need any kind of psychological drive to have intellectual curiosity. And so everything I've done in life, all of the ventures, commercial or not-for-profit or whatever they may be, They've all, they've all ultimately been intellectually stimulating, and that's been my motivation. And maybe I can generate some, some story or even some ethical story about why that's valuable for me to do or was worth doing, but it, the, the initial motivation is intellectual. But that, that's limiting in a way. That constrains the kind of things I've tried to do in life. I've only really tried to do, uh, tried to address problems that were intellectually stimulating which may not on some you know on some ethical views may not be the problems most worth addressing hmm. thank you so much chris this is 
quite fascinating already. I have many questions and I'm trying to figure out where to start. I think the best place to start is this generosity of spirit towards yourself that you mentioned. I think that's really beautiful. And a question that arises for me is why do you think that is? How did you develop that generosity of spirit or where did it come from? I think if I knew the answer to this question, I could do an awful lot of good in the world, <laughs> help an awful lot of people. And I think the truth is I don't know the answer to this question. I can look to the bodies of knowledge that are out there that I'm aware of that might seek to explain this, whether it's as just raw, inherited, you know, genetic, psychological traits, high emotional stability, you know, high openness to experience, you know, something something in very very crude, simple terms like that. Or I could look to the environmental side of it. And it's never really clear to me whether the part that isn't genetic when it comes to some of these very basic psychological traits, you know, is that the environment of the womb before birth? Is it the environment in the early years of life of which I have no memories? How much is actually the environment which I can talk about? Uh, my memories of early childhood and, and everything since then. So for what it's worth, my family life as an only child with my parents did and does feel incredibly stable, incredibly grounded. I can't, I can't recall ever being aware of any expectation of me by my parents. Certainly there was never, never any, any express expectation. And it seemed obvious to me that it was my job as a good English person to figure out what the implied expectations were. But even those didn't seem, didn't seem terribly strong. So either I missed them or they just weren't really there. So it felt, it felt like the only expectations on me that mattered were, were my own. It felt like I was completely free to decide what was worth doing and what wasn't. Um, and I was, I was left to it and bit by bit decided what mattered to me and what didn't. So in all those ways, I feel incredibly fortunate, privileged, you might say. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really interesting. I, I haven't had many guests, but some of my guests have been, I guess, relatively free of trauma. And those conversations are always a bit more difficult when it comes to relating to self, because it feels almost as if it's trauma and hardship that makes it difficult to relate to yourself. And so my next question then would be, because from my very limited and very um, non-expert position, I know nothing. That's kind of like the, the starting point. I think that everyone kind of goes through at least two traumas that we all have. I think the first is birth. I think birth is probably a very traumatic experience, but we don't remember it. And there's probably a reason why we don't remember it. And then the second trauma that I see that is probably universal is this kind of what I would call adolescence, which is you come into the world absolutely dependent on other people for your survival. And then you learn to be independent. Then you learn to create your own means of survival. And I think that's also a rather traumatic journey from both sides, from the people who 
are responsible for you and who have to make you survive. And then they need to let that go in some way when you become independent. And then obviously from, from the person who becomes independent, that's also like a weird kind of transition. So I'm curious, um, not about the first one, because we, we don't know, but about the second one, was there anything in your becoming of age in your, you know, becoming your own person and responsible for yourself that you felt perhaps was difficult or jarring or in any way created tension in your body? There certainly were. And the question to me is why they didn't reach a sort of level of, of severity that I would want to call them traumatic. And it's not simply that they happened late enough that I was already fully developed. It was fairly disruptive, at least, to move with my parents to the United States when I was five. Um, and I found that But I wouldn't say, I didn't feel torn away from a peer group or friends in England. I would say I didn't, I didn't feel strong connection with other kids at school. Uh, in, in that first year of, of school, I didn't, uh, I didn't necessarily have strong bonds to any friends. So it didn't feel like, perhaps if I had, there would have been trauma associated with with breaking those bonds, but it felt like the only relationships that mattered at that age were with my parents anyway, and I was going with them. I certainly struggled to relate to uh, other children in America. They didn't make much sense to me. Just the striking confidence, the way the way these other five and six-year-olds would would have a story to tell about who they were. They'd very confidently tell, tell me their name and something about themselves uh, and would have opinions on things and it, it didn't make sense to me I, I had this sort of sense it's like but we're children we're not entitled to have opinions on things yet you know we don't we don't know enough um, but that didn't seem to, to stop them so I think I always felt somewhat distant somewhat different um, we spent the first six months I think in New York so I, I really was I really was an Englishman in New York uh, a legal alien Uh, and felt that way. I felt I felt quite alien. So, in you know, in, I suppose enjoyed the quality of life in <laughs> in the US. But but much of much of my leisure time was spent alone playing with Lego in this sort of glass walled bit at the back of this house with 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 woodland behind it. So it's very beautiful and all these sounds of nature. Um, sort of happily sat there playing alone, and then going to electronics kits radio shack was this amazing shop which would provide all of these bits and you could start plugging them together and making things so i i was i was thoroughly entertained and i suppose they're pretty good in america at, you know i'm not sure i want i'm not sure i have a view on whether it's good or not but they'll certainly pick you out it's like oh you've done well in this iq test right well we're going to give you these extra classes and things sit down at the computer and write stuff not that i had anything to write Or any, what six-year-old has any talent at writing? But there you go. Mm. Um, so I, I can see how someone could say, oh, gosh, how traumatic an experience. But it, I certainly didn't experience it as trauma. So the, the question is, well, could, could it nonetheless be traumatic? And there's all of this suppressed trauma that I still haven't uncovered. 
Well, I think at this point, maybe it's interesting to say that the definition of trauma that I use is the definition that I heard from someone like Gabor Mate. It's all about this idea that there are emotions that are unprocessed and then get stuck in the body, right? I think that the trauma is not going through something that's difficult because that happens all the time. But if you're able, if your nervous system is able to just process those emotions, let them flow, feel them fully, then there is no trauma because you're not holding on to something. It's only when the emotions are not safe to express in the environment that you find yourself that they kind of get stuck. And I guess that's what then we call trauma. So it sounds like maybe you had some difficult experiences. You had some things that were in the moment hard to deal with, but you were able to fully express those feelings or have them without any kind of shame. So it ended up not being traumatic. And yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I, I think that's right. Maybe I maybe I found one that fits that definition well and does indeed still show up even in my experience today. So it, so it looks like it's a good it's a good fit, which is the sense of being hurried, especially being hurried to leave home. So the, the pressure to be ready for the school bus in the morning really felt felt very heavy. And I, so it, you know, that really was probably my most intense emotional experience during those years was that pressure of I've got to be ready at this time and they're waiting for me or else I'm, you know, I missed the bus and it'll be terribly inconvenient. Mm. Which makes me curious now to ask about how that potentially impacted your relating to self, right? Is there something in you? Is there part of you that still stresses out about like being on time or making sure that you catch your flight or any of these things that have to do with time pressure? Yeah, I think it's still there. I think I still feel it. I still get surprisingly anxious or agitated about needing to leave or be on time, especially when it involves leaving home. Having to get out the door in order to go somewhere is inherently uh, anxious in some way. Mm. Well, this is wonderful. I mean, I'm sorry to say this. This is terrible. Of course, I don't wish that upon anyone, but it's wonderful because it it gives me something to work with <laughs> in the sense that I now would love to know how you deal with that. Like, do you have some kind of a practice that, or a, like a ritual that you go through with yourself, be it breathing or anything else that helps you deal with that deep held anxiety? Because you now know as an adult that there is nothing difficult or potentially dangerous about, you know, being late or anything like that. So that seems unnecessary. So I'm, I'm curious how you go to the process of talking to yourself about this and then getting back to a baseline normal state. Well, what's interesting is the way I engage with it as a, as a problem is not on the felt level at all. Uh, it is entirely it is entirely at the sort of narrative conceptual level of self. Some analysis goes on and more or less, unless I'm catching a plane or a train or uh, if I had to appear in front of a judge or tribunal, <laughs> that then that seems sufficiently important not to be late that I would force myself to calculate really to spend the time figuring out how much time do I need here to prepare and not be late. Uh, 
and to build in enough margin for error that I would not be late. And otherwise in life, I, I haven't. Uh, and I think I have been rude and disrespectful in simply not taking seriously enough the need to be on time. Mm, this is really interesting. Because that also makes me think about agreements and how we decide to show up to agreements, to keep agreements. For me, in my life, I've noticed that my ability to honor my agreements has greatly improved once I started honoring my own agreements. Again, it's, it's all about this idea of relating to self, right? It's like, why would I honor an agreement with someone else if I can't even do that for myself? And so once I started taking my own agreements with myself more seriously, such as I will hydrate, I will drink enough water every day, or, you know, I will work out regularly. Very simple things that I agree with with myself are important. And the more I show up to those kind of things, the easier it becomes somehow to also keep external agreements with other people. And so when you say I have, I've been rude and I've been perhaps disrespectful because I don't show up on time. I want to know about how you navigate your agreements with yourself. Are there things that you say to yourself, I will do this or I will show up in this certain way. And then you think, oh, it doesn't matter much. Or, you know, how, how does that feel for you? Interestingly, when it comes to agreements with myself, I'd say I honor them very faithfully. Wow. Uh, I take them very seriously. They, 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 they stay with me. Um, and, and it happens all the time. It's, it's still happening all the time. It, it wasn't just a childhood phase of noticing that something has gone wrong or whether it's, it seems to be that I've made a mistake or not done something as well as I could or whether it's someone else. Um, I've always noticed those moments and they felt that they've had a certain quality to the, to, to the noticing of them. And it, it, I felt that, ah, now is my time to, to make a choice to decide what to do differently next time or what to change or what needs to be said to avoid this happening again. And I'm good at those things stick. I remember them and they come up preemptively when I'm next in a similar situation. And I remember, ah, last time this went wrong in this way. And I told myself that I would do it this way this time and I'll do it. So I'd say I'm actually pretty good when it comes to agreements with myself. This is really interesting as well, because you said, I always noticed those moments. And I think this is key. I think the first step into any kind of journey into relating to self is awareness, is becoming aware of what's actually happening, right? For me, gaining that awareness of what I was deciding or how I was making choices was very difficult. Most of the time I was acting out of some kind of automatic process. It felt like I didn't really think about it. So gaining awareness of how I function and how I make choices was very hard and took many years of meditation. You just said, I always noticed those moments. So it sounds like you had this innate ability to be aware of your inner process. Would you say that's accurate? I think that's right. And I don't, I don't know why or how. And certainly my own experiences with meditation have been one of great familiarity, actually. Like, oh, yes, yes, of course I know this, <laughs> this, kind, of, this kind of state. Gosh, what's all the fuss about? <laughs> and in fact, you know, 
isn't a bit of a, a bit of a sort of misplaced effort here, us sitting all day, several days in a row, doing this when it, this is incredibly useful in everyday life. If we're not doing this all the time, uh, how are we how are we making it through life at all? Of course, that's that's the point. Uh, it, in in many ways, we we are going through life autonomously, uh, not reflectively. Yeah, I, I guess I agree with that. Uh, the, the point of meditation is not to meditate. The point of meditation is to gain the ability to be more aware of what's happening in everyday life. For me, at least, that's clear. Um, but I guess for most people, the meditation is there because they need to practice that. They don't have that in, in daily life because they've also never seen it around them. They've never experienced it. And so they need that specific practice. And it's really hard in the beginning because you have you don't even have an inkling of what it is about, right? Like when I first started meditating, I didn't know what the desirable state was like. So it, I was completely in darkness, I could say. And it's only through continuous exposure and to then hearing others speak about what maybe it could feel like, mostly in metaphors, <laughs> that I kind of developed this idea of like, ah, yes, this is what it feels like. I... I am now more aware of what's happening right now, which can then bring me the benefit of, in my daily life, also being more aware of the things I do, the choices I make, and so on. So it sounds like you've, you've had that from a very early age quite fluently. But then my next question would be, why do you think is it that there exists this discrepancy between the way you honor your agreements with yourself very easily and you're very aware of them but still don't do the same with agreements to perhaps other people and what's clear to me is that where those agreements with other people are sufficiently expressed where where there is where there is a mutual agreement and sometimes the lawyer in me I, I can sort of feel it coming through my innate lawyer. It's like, ah, oh, well, you didn't say that you cared about me being on time for for us getting together now. So it's you know it's not in the contract. So you can't rely on me to be there exactly on time. We're just defaulting to the rough cultural norm. But if you say if it matters, and if if it's if it's clear to me that it matters, you don't have to say but if it's sufficiently obvious to me that it matters or if you say that it matters then i honor it and i really care very much about promises agreements and anything that's expressed and there's a, there's an assumption built in there that others will feel empowered to express their needs and will ask me and of course that assumption isn't isn't a good one Yeah. And that's that's how I that's how I fail others is by unreasonably treating them as more independent than they can be in this particular context of this interaction with me. And in fact, I should be more aware of their experience and supporting them in understanding me uh, and therefore figuring out how to express themselves to me in a way that I will understand so that we can collaborate. Yeah, I I agree with you, except for the should that you used. I don't think there's a should there. I think that's a choice. And I think it's beautiful if you make that choice to try to be aware of like, where is the other at? 
are they indeed able to sufficiently express their own agency or do they need a bit of a nudge? Do they come from a culture where, for example, passive communication is normal? And if I want an explicit agreement, I will have to ask for it, basically. So it becomes almost like, okay, I need to ask for what I need, an explicit agreement, in order to then be able to engage in this process with joy. That's beautiful. Yeah. Um, and I hear you. This is very difficult. Um, I think I have made a commitment to always be explicit in my agreements and in my daily life this translates as making way less agreements <laughs> i feel like by being more precise like what is it that i want to agree to and if i feel any kind of doubt if i don't feel the full body yes so to speak i will not commit i will not agree to something specific i might still engage with it i might say like look if i have the space if i have the time yes i will show up but don't count on it and i think it's important to have that clarity for myself and so i'm curious if that's also something that you've been practicing in some way to like have this clarity of the things that you feel you can absolutely commit or agree to yes that feels like it's been one of the one of the later things to mature and it it required me first beginning to feel I had the outline of a, of a worldview, for want of a better word, that I was moving out of that early life phase of just openness. I just don't know what matters in life. And so it doesn't make sense for me to even start trying to frame an ethics or uh, you know, whatever it may be. And, and it's, it's only these last few years, really, you know, approaching 40 that I've, I've started to feel confident enough to say no okay I I now have from life experience and these different bodies of relevant knowledge philosophical scientific whatever it may be I have enough to start framing this for myself and given that frame now I can start to decide trade-offs to prioritize and I can be I can be clear I can say no in a way that it didn't feel right to do in that earlier phase. It just didn't, because almost any new experience or anything new happening could be the key thing. And in, in fact, life showed me that the most important things did seem to happen unexpectedly, unforeseeably. And so it absolutely did not make sense to rule anything out ever. Uh, so that that's changed, started to change in the last few years. So I, I too will now be much more careful before committing to something, before before agreeing. Mm. Beautiful. Thank you, Chris. I'm also curious if there's any area of your relating to self, of the way you treat yourself, the way you show up to yourself, that still feels difficult for you in some way sometimes. Hmm. I suppose what's hard is where we started with this, which is how do I... How do I represent myself to others? Because it, it feels it's easy on the inside. I know what it feels like to be me. And I can, with this sort of developing worldview, this developing understanding of what life is and what, uh, what matters, I can start to make decisions for myself about how to spend these precious moments of being alive. But presenting myself to others, representing myself to others is 
seems inherently difficult. I, and I've, I don't believe in simple, authentic self-expression. I, I, don't, I don't believe there is any such thing as simple authenticity. It's, I don't think I'm succeeding in being authentic if I express myself in a way that feels true to me, but is not received by others in the way that I intended it. If it's interpreted by others in a way that is other than how I interpret it myself, then I've failed to express myself authentically. And this, this, is, this is controversial. I find myself in, in debate with others about this. Um, some people are reluctant to give up their, their unilateral right to be authentic. Because what I'm saying is no, in fact, we can't possibly succeed in being authentic uh, without taking into account how others interpret us, how others understand us. Um, so authenticity becomes a shared, it's, it's a relation. And that puts constraints on possible authentic self-expression. If, if, I'm, if I'm not authentically expressing myself unless I'm understood, well, now I must, if I wish to authentically express myself, I must express myself in ways that will be understood by others. So I'm forced towards trying to find some shared vocabulary with others in which to express myself. And that's, that's, that's hard because it takes time to establish that kind of shared vocabulary. So I, there's part of me that is very skeptical about broadcasting at all. I simply don't understand how can I, how can I possibly express myself to an unknown audience, diverse audience, because the, the common denominator of conceptual vocabulary in which I should express myself if I want to successfully authentically express myself is going to be tiny. If, if, I, if I have to ensure that whoever's listening, they'll receive it, uh, I can hardly say anything at all. <laughs> Beautiful. I'd, I'd love to react to two things here. Like first is the idea that I love this exploration of authenticity as a relationship. I've never heard this before. This is really cool. And I think maybe a solution to the hard problem of finding a common language could be found in a method of feedback so that it's not just about you fully understanding what the languages you need to use, but also just like testing something small and then trying, like having a process where you, you notice if the other didn't understand you. And I think that that feels kind of almost organic to me. I guess there's always some of that going on in human communication, mostly probably subconscious or, you know, unaware. And then the other thing is broadcasting. Yeah. How does that work in this context? This is beautiful because obviously we are broadcasting right now. And so I can give you my vision on this because uh, I have similar thoughts. And I was struggling with this very often while working on this podcast. Like, how do I know what my audience needs. How do I know that they will understand the language with which I express myself or how I structure my thoughts? And then I figured like, look, it doesn't matter. What's important is that I put this thing out there. What's important is that I do this work because I think it's meaningful for me. I enjoy doing it. And there is a thought that maybe someone out there will find value in this. Maybe someone will understand something 
and they will find value for themselves. They will think about it and they will do something with it. And I've come to the point where I even believe that this value may be different for those people than for me. What happens sometimes is I have a conversation on the podcast and I think afterwards like, hmm, this wasn't very good. It wasn't very clear or I'm not satisfied in some way. Like it didn't fit what I hoped to get from it. But then I get feedback from people who listen to specifically that episode and they say like, wow, that was like life changing for me because I heard this thing and it made me think of this. And then I changed this other thing. And I'm like, wow, I, I didn't hear that in that conversation, but that's wonderful. So Maybe the point as to which, when it comes to broadcasting, obviously this is different when I'm you know, sitting with someone in a room, but when it comes to broadcasting, my principle now is people will find what they think is useful for them. And that is more than enough for me. Mm. That makes sense to me. It, it's, still, it's still very much work in progress, this, this trying to make sense of authentic... Mm expression i'm i'm drawing for, for those who are interested in um some of the philosophical writings of um, j david velman on, on this one how do you spell that velman is v-e-l-l-e-m-a-n great i'll put it in the show notes so that people can can find that wonderful chris we are um sadly approaching the end of this conversation um I can't believe this has already been so long. Uh, I would love to continue the conversation for a long time, I think. But before we part ways, uh, there's one question that I always ask at the end of these conversations. And that is, is there any question that you would have loved to answer, but that I didn't ask you? Huh. The answer is no, truly there wasn't. Because I didn't have a preconceived notion of what this was for indeed where we ended up i'm still trying to understand what <laughs> what broadcasting is for uh and you answered it yourself it, you know it's about feedback and i think i understand the kind of feedback that's between two people in a conversation or when it's small groups when it's personal and i can be you know sensitive to that and it's there's some there's things happening on very different time scales when it's broadcasting the, you know those feedback loops may be well, they may be open, they may not be closed, but I think there's something, I mean, you're right when you say, of course, there's still, there's still influence there. There's still potentially positive things happening for people. So I think my, what I'm taking away is to not get too caught up philosophically on how to define authentic self-expression and whether this is or isn't that, because the, you know, my, my younger self would have, would have, probably argued with me and said, no, just be more open. I mean, almost, almost anything that's happening might be the, the inspiration or the, the, the influence I needed to point me in a slightly different direction or make me consider some new area that I hadn't, I hadn't noticed before. So it, it doesn't make sense to try and close things down. Beautiful. I love that takeaway. I think that's very valuable for me as well, actually. <laughs> so thank you so much, Chris, for this beautiful conversation. I usually also ask, you know, where people can find you and where they can connect with you. And your answer to that was in and around Lisbon, which I found really beautiful and poetic in a way. Is there anything else that you would like to share, like where people maybe can find your work or uh, your thoughts? Um, I think what someone's interest is will determine what I point them to. Uh, <laughs> but I'm very open to 
to engaging with with anyone who who is interested. So uh, I maybe an email is the <laughs> is the best way to Beautiful. to get in contact with me. Then I will post your email address in the show notes. And then people can find it there. And for the people listening, if you would feel inspired to spend some time with Chris, I can definitely recommend going to Lisbon. Uh, Chris lives in this beautiful place in nature around Lisbon. Um, I've been there sadly for only one day, but I would definitely want to go back. So, <laughs> Chris, thank you so much. Have a wonderful day. Thank you, Joachim. I've, I've really enjoyed the conversation. If you've enjoyed this conversation, please subscribe to the podcast. You can also read more of my thoughts on Twitter. I will post a link in the description. And if you are interested in improving your relationship with yourself, please subscribe to my email list at relatingtoself.com. I will then send you meditations, rituals, practices, and more of these beautiful conversations. Thanks. Thanks.